Amen. Thank you, Chris. Well, happy Reformation Day. Some are like, what? We'll talk about that here in a few. I want to kick off the morning uh, with a few announcements. I, I hope you're continuing to follow our immeasurably more stories, and we have been uh, praying and asking God to do immeasurably more in our church. Immeasurably more than we can ask, that we can pray for, that we can dream for. Uh, we are asking God to do just that. And um, we've had a, a few stories. I wanted to share one with you this morning. One of the requests is, what I asked of the Lord, I asked the Lord for comfort after I called and prayed with my grandma who has cancer. And how the Lord gave immeasurably more. After I got off the phone with my grandma, I went to my favorite coffee shop to grab a drink. And when I ordered, the barista said, I'm, I'm giving you this for free, just out of nowhere. We struck up a conversation and something so seemingly small made me feel extremely cared for and comforted. It was, it was a reminder of how the Lord is a good father that cares deeply for his children. It's extremely comforting knowing that the Lord cares about me so much that he would randomly give me a free coffee, a free gift, just to cheer me up. It's just a, a tangible reminder, and this is what we're sharing. If you go to immeasurablymore.church, there's stories from our church, people who are praying uh, for family members, for salvation, and how God is answering that. And some of us kind of stand in this in-between moment where we are asking of God and we're, we're seeking God, but God has yet to answer. And so uh, I would just encourage you to, to go there. Um, we want to be, be a church that believes God can do immeasurably more. You see at your seat today, I know Greg will speak of this later, but uh, we're really taking a week of prayer to focus and really ask God as we move into our new building here, hopefully pray, prayerfully in another month, um, that God would do immeasurably more through that. We've, uh, we've taken up an immeasurably more offering. Our goal, just to communicate that, we're, we're seeking to raise above and beyond our general budget, our general giving at Ecclesia, we want to see $75,000 towards immeasurably more. And we've taken in a little over 10000 already, which is awesome. Praise God for that. We're excited to see God do uh, immeasurably more through that. And we would ask that you would continue to give towards that. Um, I want to applaud our kids and family ministries uh, for putting on an awesome event yesterday in the park. Thankful for their service. Um, we had tons of folks out there, and we just thank them for hosting us and serving us so well. Uh, great time of fellowship, connection, fun for uh, kiddos. And I even saw a few adults um, really taking their pumpkin carving very seriously. So, good times. Um, I would uh, encourage you to keep your eye out for uh, family lunches that will be occurring. I think our next one is November 7th. Uh, this is uh, really what it looks like to join the Ecclesia family. And so on November 7th, we'll have our second lunch. We have 26 people registered for that. We had almost 25 people at our last luncheon. We're excited to see people joining the family here. And lastly, I would just say about community groups, community groups are a gift. 
Over the last uh, several weeks, as, we, as we've kind of stepped back into the rhythm of gathering regularly, I've just been reminded of what a gift they are. Uh, if, if you've stepped into Ecclesia, which is a lot of you, within the last year or two years, uh, we started community groups about a month before uh, COVID uh, became a deal. Like, and, and in many ways, people who have walked in community groups or have experienced community groups uh, have not really actually gotten a good taste of what they are because COVID was not really a, a great season. No one was prepared to be able to step in and lead a group during COVID season, but many of our leaders did, and they graciously gave of their time and effort to care. Um, but now as we see these groups kind of beginning to enter back in, and I just want you to, to know what a gift they are. As someone who says like, yes, I want every single person to be a part of a community group, I'm someone who gets to be the, the beneficiary of that group. And it's a gift to me, it's a gift to be able to lead one, it's a gift to be able to be a part of one, it's a gift to be able to be prayed for and receive encouragement, but it's also a gift to be able to give encouragement. And uh, I would just encourage you to be a part of that. That's all I have and in terms of announcements. We are in uh, 1 John chapter 2 this morning. And as we get a start, I want to invite my boys to come on out and grab a seat. And there's a reason why I want to do this this morning. I really want to, to help us really get into the understanding and context of this passage and what's happening in this passage. I sat with my community group last Sunday night, and we wrestled with the reality of this text of what it means to walk in light and walk in darkness. And if I could be honest with you, the messages that we are, are touching on and we're about to touch on are widely unpopular. The idea of talking about not sinning in a culture that has really tried to get comfortable with sin or has looked to dismiss sin. And it's not only by those who are outside the church. In fact, last week as I sat with my community group, I felt like there was a wrestling even within our community group that, that, that I think is, is healthy. There needs to be a healthy tension within the text, but we see all this sin and forgiveness and confession and walking in darkness and walking in light. And I love, as I began reading this week, I came across a brief excerpt from Martin Lloyd-Jones that said, there are two main dangers that always confront us. And those two main dangers that always confront us are complacency and hopelessness. My job as a pastor, as a teacher, is to try to thread the needle between complacency, just being happy and content with where you are, and a sense of hopelessness of going, I can never measure up. And there's probably a mixed group of people here, some who are quite satisfied with where they are, 
and some who are in despair, wondering why God would even allow them to have another day. The point of this passage is to figure out how to thread the needle. And as I do so, and as hopefully I, I get to preach with some intensity this morning, I want you to look at these boys. The passage starts off with the word my. My. They're his. There's some ownership. There's a sense of connection. Little. This is not meant to be demeaning, but a sense of speaking to those who are younger in the faith. This is John writing from a geriatric state looking down upon those younger in the faith, my little children. I want you to see these boys. These are my little children. These are my boys who I love, who I care for. This is John writing at an older point in life, imparting wisdom to a younger generation of how to maintain fellowship with God. And the one thing that stands in the way of maintaining fellowship with God is sinfulness. This isn't John writing with harshness. This isn't John writing with lack of love. This is John writing with the role of a father. Now, I get that I'm not your father, and I get that there's many of you who are older than me in this room. But God has positioned spiritual authority in our lives to impart wisdom, to impart truth, to play the role of a spiritual father so that we would maintain fellowship with God. I want you to have this in mind as we look at this passage, the imparting of wisdom, the love from a father, the word from a spiritual leader, the one who is out to give you assurance of the hope that you have in Jesus. It's a dad. And maybe you haven't had anyone ever play that role in your life, someone who's imparted spiritual wisdom to you, someone who has sat down at, at a table and has looked at you and said, son, there's some truths I want you to know. There's some things I want you to protect yourself against. There's some things I want you to guard yourself against. There are some things that you need to know, that you need to believe. There are some examples that you need to follow. This is what John is doing in this passage. John is imparting wisdom 
as a father. John is saying, I'm about to go out of the world. I'm not going to be here much longer. And the one thing that matters for you is that you should always be walking with God, always maintaining fellowship. And I wrote this to you so that you wouldn't sin. If you want to know God and maintain fellowship with him, don't sin. But the reality is, is we wrestle, and this is that complacency and hopelessness, because the reality is, is all of us have this title, sinner. So there's this standard, there's this, 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 this goal, this, this objective in the Bible that we've been given, don't sin, but yet we go, I'm a sinner. So we're hopeless. Some of us get fed up with just being hopeless, so we just say, this is just who I am. This is just who I'm going to be. I can never change. And I'm praying that God would set you free from that this morning because you can change. This passage is revealing He says, I'm writing these things. And we ask, like, well, what things? Well, particularly, I think it's referring to 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10 that we covered last week, what it looks like to maintain fellowship with Jesus, to walk with Jesus. I'm writing these things to you. I'm writing them to you so that it would reveal something. So if if you sat last week and you had challenge with the text, if you wrestled with the text, if you were uncomfortable with the text, then the text is actually doing the very thing it was intended to do. He's writing these things with an intended purpose, that it would lead to not just more information, but transformation, that you would be changed. I look at my community group last week and I felt like there was wrestle. If we're honest, if they were those who were in my community group, I felt like there were some who disliked me in my community group last week. And that's okay. Why? Because I'm doing so out of love. And I'm doing so as someone who desires and cares for us not to see how close we can get to sin, but do what the Bible tells us to do and flee from sin. And so how do we do that? There's this wrestle. And I told you, when I, when I first approached this passage, the first time I ever heard this passage, I came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Here's why. Because it reveals things. You know what it revealed for me? It revealed to me that I didn't know the Father. It revealed to me that I didn't know the Father. Why? Because if you were to ask me when I was 18 years old, did I pursue obedience? The answer was no. I could care less. Do I see my need for Jesus as my advocate? The answer was no. Do I love the word of God? The answer was no. Do I follow in the example of Jesus? The answer was no. Do I love God's people? The answer was no. I didn't dislike them. I just didn't care for them. And as I heard this passage taught, 
I realized the love of the Father must not be in me. And rather than changing the standard of God, I realized that there needed to be a change in me, a change that only God could do. And it was in that moment that I said, God, and obviously God had been pursuing me for a long time, but that's where I submitted my life to. Here's what I want you to hear this morning as we jump in. This passage is meant to change us. It should be tough to hear. It should be something that we wrestle with. Each of us needs our doctrine refined. We need a change in beliefs. Each of us needs to sharpen our obedience and submission to the Lord. We need a change in behavior. Each of us needs to grow in our love for one another and for the Father. The purpose for which John is writing is to transform, and the Word of God does just that. And it kind of stings. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and tensions of the heart. That does not sound awesome. Piercing. That's what God's Word is meant to do. So here's what John is doing. John's going, listen up, boys. Listen up. Don't sin. Don't sin. But if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins, And not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. This is what John is going to teach us today. And he teaches us four things in walking in obedience to Jesus. And that's what we're going to cover. Thanks, guys. You can go back to your seat. John is going to fight for their maturity in the faith. He isn't their dad, but he loves them. He's not their father, but he he is a spiritual role model in their life, an example. And what we're going to see, and the question I want to ask is, how is John hoping to encourage, comfort, and move his children to obedience in Jesus. Four things. First one is this, the objective. The objective. He starts off in this text with the objective. What is the objective? What does it say? My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The objective of this passage is don't sin. Don't sin. That's the objective. This is his aim. This is what he's concerned about. And I think if, if we look at this passage in reality, he's concerned that some are going to misinterpret what he's previously said. Because in some way, the very fact that 
you can come and confess your sins, and you can come and ask for forgiveness, would that not lead to more sin? Would that not lead to just lawlessness? The very fact that 1 John chapter 1, 5 through 10 teaches us that, that we can come to, to Jesus Christ, and as long as we confess our sin, that he'll forgive us. So why in the world would we pursue righteousness or holiness? Why in the world, why, why don't we just live in, in, in a way in which we just do what we want to do and then ask God for forgiveness and bring confession? And, and just so that no one misinterprets what he just says, he goes, hey, and, and just so you know, the objective is don't sin. This is the objective. We can't say, if I sin, big deal, God will forgive. Sin's inevitable. Sin is just a normal pattern of the Christian life. And I think that's where some of us have grown complacent. Maybe we say, as a Christian, I have liberty. I'm no longer under the law. I can do what I want. If I, can, if I sin, God will forgive me. But I came across a translation of verse 1 that that says this, I'm writing these things so you won't regard sin as an inevitable part of the Christian life, and so you won't presume on Christian liberty by thinking sin is no big deal. Christians are saved from sin, not to sin. Sin is a standard. The very word sin means to miss the mark. How many of you have ever done like target practice or archery or you've ever gone to a gun range, right? If you're anything like me, you miss the mark at those places, right? It's like we can't hit the bullseye. God has a bullseye. He has a standard. He has a desire for our lives and we as human beings often miss the mark. We don't measure up. There's a standard. And what's interesting about this passage is when we look at this standard, we can either fold under the weight of the standard and go, I can never measure up, so I'm never, I can never reach that goal, so I'm never going to, to, to strive for it. Or the other is, is to, to put so much like heaping weight upon ourselves that we grow, what I talked about earlier, this sense of hopelessness. And we're meant to walk in this, this way in which we're, we're, we're not walking in a complacent, contented state of our current spiritual status. And we're no longer walking in this hopeless state of where there is no hope when we're just in constant despair. But we are to put to death sin. There is a responsibility. The very fact that he says, don't sin, means that there is a calling upon our life, a command upon our life, that we could actually not sin. We wouldn't ever be commanded to do something that we were incapable of doing. We've been asked to do something because he asked us by the power of the Holy Spirit to obey it. 
We've, we have responsibility in this. Now, let me hit on another subject that's quite unpopular. Most of us believe that God provides all the growth. We've read passages about that, right? God does provide all the growth. But it is not just a, a passive letting go and letting God. There is actually a submission of your life. Yes, he will empower the growth in your life. Yes, he will empower the obedience in your life, but it must be a life that is submitted to him. I think for us, when I read this passage, I do not come to the conclusion that there is a sense in which we as believers are, are meant to dabble in sin, but to flee from sin. We're not to argue for sin or make excuses for sin. We're to flee sin. And in the conversations that I've had the last, in, just in the last week regarding the passage, there's almost a sense of when we think about walking in darkness, we want to almost be okay with the fact that can a believer walk in darkness? And we wrestled with that even last week in our community group. And there's a sense in which we want to say yes because in some ways we feel like we've walked in darkness. And we don't want the reality of what it says happens to those who walk in darkness be the reality of our lives. But when we get into 1 John chapter 3, it says that no one who makes practice of sinning knows the Father. We cannot continue to walk in darkness and say we know God. And so there is a sense in which God is calling for our, obedi our obedience. Don't sin. Don't sin. Why should we not sin? God hates sin. Sin leads to brokenness. Sin leads to suffering. Sin denies the gospel power. Sin breaks fellowship with God. It makes you miserable, and it'll lead to doubts and uncertainties about the relationship you have with God. First John's going to talk about all those different things. My question to you today is, what has caused you to change your mind about sin? Let me, can I ask myself, Justin, what's caused you to change your mind about sin? Because I do it too. And I want you to hear I'm talking to myself this morning. When we look at our, our culture, when we look at our own sinful desires, there's a sense in which that we're kind of cuddling up with sin. We, we, we've kind of grown comfortable with sin. And I think for most of us, we go, we see the standard, we see the bar that God had set, and we go, I, I can't be there. I know I'm right here. And you know, it's really comfortable to live right here. So rather than looking and going, God's standard is here, and I'm right here, 
And, man, it would take a lot of work. It would take a lot of effort. It would take a lot of discipline. It would take a lot of prayer. It would take a lot of effort to get here. So I'd rather just bring God's standard down to where I am so that I'm, I'm pretty comfortable. I'm, I'm doing good. We change God rather than changing us. Can I be honest with you this morning? I, I haven't been dishonest with you, but can I, can I press a little bit more? Yes or no? Okay. Seeing how we're doing. I have seen churches all across our city, all across America, lower the standard. God's standard is here. But you know what? That makes people uncomfortable. And I don't want people to experience uncomfortableness. I want people to come in and be happy. I want people to come in and feel good about themselves. And if I preach on sin, it's going to make people uncomfortable. So you know what I do? I'll tell you what. Well, we just won't teach on this standard. We won't teach on sin. We won't teach on hell. We won't teach on the consequences. And so we'll lower the standard. And I can tell you that there are churches all across our city that are lowering our standard, that are lowering the standard of Scripture, all in attempts to reach people. And I'm telling you, the church is dying. The churches are dying. We as a church will continue to teach that sin is sin. Heaven and hell are real. God is a God of both light and love. God is a God who is just, but he's also a God who is gracious. We will continue to teach the reality of the truth of Scripture. We all can, can begin to compromise our, God's standard out of an attempt to make people comfortable for the short time they have on earth and send them off to experience eternal punishment forever. It's unloving. And the reality is the most loving thing we can do is to teach truth with love. And that's what the Bible teaches. It's not to compromise one for the other. Jesus was both gracious and truthful. He called sin, sin, but told them their sin was forgiven. There is an objective. There is a standard. There is a sense of going, this is the target. And John tells us, it's to not sin. Don't sin. The second thing, though, that he tells us, there's an objective, but there's also a belief. There's a belief. It goes on in verse 1, but if anyone does sin, there's like this command and this comfort. Don't sin. But if anyone does sin, what do we have? 
we have an advocate. An advocate is one who is called alongside to help in time of need. All of us need an advocate. We all need someone to come alongside us. We have an advocate with the Father. Who is it? Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's why he is our advocate, because he is righteous. He is sinless. He is perfect. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Can I tell you why this is good news? And can I tell you why this helps us walk in obedience? What you believe about God determines the course of your obedience. What you believe about God determines the course of your obedience. If you believe that you have a God who forgives, who is gracious, that you have Jesus Christ as an advocate. He is advocating for you right now before the throne of God. Then you'll pursue him. You know what typically happens in my sin? When I sin, when I've blown it, what typically comes to mind is uh, the fact that I have an accuser. Not only do we have an advocate, but all of us have an accuser, the enemy, Satan, who wants to point out our sin. And you know what he tells us? You can never change. There's some of us who believe that in the room this morning. You can never change. I, I know John has called you to not sin, but that can never be you. You are a sinner. You'll always be a sinner. You'll always be a failure. You'll always be a loser. You can never match up. You can never hit the mark. You can never reach God's standard. You will never be perfect. And there are some of us who have been beat up with that garbage over and over and over and over, and you're starting to believe it about yourself, or you do believe it about yourself. And this morning, I believe through the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of God's word, you can be set free from that. Why? Because you have an advocate. The accuser stands before the throne of God, and he's pointing out, and he's saying, look at Justin. Look at what a failure he is. He can, he can never match up to your standard. You should totally disregard him. You should totally let him go his own way. You should totally give him over to his sin. You should totally, and Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Every sin that, that my son has ever committed, every sin has been forgiven. Why? Because Jesus is the propitiation. He is the perfect sacrifice. The wrath of God that is meant to be targeted straight towards us for our sin was poured out on his son Jesus so that we stand before the throne of God not accused but loved, accepted, and chosen by the Father. We must be set free from any type of lie that the enemy would throw at us this morning that we're not accepted. And as long as we believe we're not accepted, we're not loved, we're not 
one of the, the father's sons or daughters, that we can never beat sin, we will continue to live in sin and live in disobedience. Our beliefs have to change. And this is where John says, listen, I know you'll sin. And I give you this as a comfort, not to be abused, but that when you do, you have somewhere to run. You got somewhere to go. Is Christ your advocate? We're here today on Reformation Day. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther went to the church and nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church. This would launch the, the Protestant Reformation. The, the whole gist, if I can kind of bring you up to speed uh, in like 10 seconds on the Protestant Reformation, it's this idea that our good works can, can never merit the favor of God. And this is what Martin Luther was advocating for. The truth of Scripture and the reality of the grace of God that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, that it is not of our good works that, that any favor upon God would look upon us, that Martin Luther would go and advocate for this. In his ultimate statement, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, that basically just says, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and good works are a result of that faith. And what's ended up happening, there, there's, a, there's a book that talks about the unintended consequences of the Reformation. And what's interesting about the unintended consequences of the Reformation is that because we believed we're not saved by good works, we don't practice good works. Because we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, that there is an overemphasizing of grace, that it's all grace and not a calling towards obedience. It's this idea, if, if we have an advocate, if it's all grace, then why not just sin? If you do sin, why can't we just confess it? Can't we just be forgiven? All is well. And the reality is, if we live in that state, we don't really understand the cross. Jesus didn't go to the cross so that we would keep on sinning. That's not the point. Jesus went to the cross to deliver us from sin. He is our advocate to deliver us from sin. And his being our advocate helps us be delivered from sin. Third thing is this. Not only does he give us an, a, a, a tongue tied there, give us an objective, not only does he give us a belief, the reality of who God is, but he gives us an example. 
we see in this passage as it goes on. And by this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. We do what he says. Where, where are God's commandments? Anybody? In the Bible. God's commandments are, are there in God's word. He's given us his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a what? Liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever he says abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Who walked? Jesus. If you obey his commandments, if you abide in him, you ought to walk in the way Jesus walked. You remember the WWJD bracelets? It was probably before most of your time, but I feel like they're making a comeback. And I think it's great. I love it. What would Jesus do? I think it's a great question. I ask the question all the time. I asked the question this week multiple times. I go, what would Jesus do? And that's the actual, that's what this passage is saying. If we abide in him, we should constantly ask, what would Jesus do? And then do that. That's what he's calling us to. That's the obedience that, 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 God's, that John's calling us to is, what would Jesus do? Do that. Well, what am I be, to be obedient to? The very things that Jesus was obedient to. He gives us this example. He doesn't leave us guessing. For those who are seeking to walk in this, and you're like, what does it look like? Well, it looks like Jesus. It looks like we look to Jesus and follow in the example of Jesus. I love this. It talks about the commandments of the Lord, and it says, you keep his word. The actual word keep there is a military term. It's meant to invoke military vigor. If you were to keep something in a military form, you would protect it at all cost, right? Like, I'm keeping the enemy from this. And so I'm setting up a, a fortress. I'm setting up, you know, a militarized zone. I, I'm putting barriers around this. I'm protecting from this. I'm keeping. Here's my question. Is that how we keep the word of God? Does that describe our keeping of the commandments of God? This is what he, he's leading us towards. It says, in this type of person, one who keeps the word like that, the love of God is perfected. It doesn't mean it's perfect. It means it's growing to maturity. That your love for the Lord would be growing as you keep his word. Psalm 119, 11. Check this out. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Did you know that storing up the commandments of God and keeping the commandments of God and knowing the word of God and reading the word of God protects you from sin? That's what the Bible says. So here's the question. Do you read the Bible? It's like Christianity 101. I know we're getting back to the basics here. But I think it's, it's easy for us to neglect it. 
How often do we spend time in the Word of God? And I think like, oh, come on, Justin, like, you sounded super legalistic this morning. You're adding all these, you know, measures. I'm like, no, I'm giving you tools, not rules. Like, God's Word protects us. God's Word, like storing up God's Word in our heart is what keeps us from sin. He just told us, don't sin. If you want to maintain fellowship with God, don't sin. If you want to know the reality of who God is and Him being an advocate for you and someone you can run to, it's in God's Word. How often are we in God's Word? Are we reading God's Word? I just think like, I, I, this past week, I, I joke because we used to talk about when, when I first became a Christian, it was like, hey, do you have a quiet time? And it's like, it's so cliche to ask that, and you're like, oh, that's weird, don't ask that. But I'm like, no, really, we should have a quiet time. A time alone in God's Word that's quiet, that we're not bombarded with all the noises and sounds of everything that's going on in our world, but really just a time to get alone with God in His Word and allow Him to speak to us and have fellowship with Him. It's not meant to be an empty practice of just like we're sitting down and reading the newspaper just for information, but we're reading. We want to know the heart of our Father. We want to know His good calling upon our life. We want to know the things that He's commanded us to walk in. We want to know the life of Jesus and how Jesus lived so we can walk in obedience towards it. I remember a few years ago, I came across, uh, I think it was John Piper, and it was this, this picture of a, of a lion. And he says, the devil is a roaring lion seeking to devour you. He's the father of lies. He's scheming. He's got plans to take you out. And your casual two-minute Bible reading is not going to protect you. You must keep the Word of God. You must guard the Word of God. You must store up the Word of God in your life. Church, we want to be a Bible people. We want to know the Bible. We want to bleed the Bible. And so it's like, I'm hammering us to like read the Bible. Yes. God's word is a gift to us. John MacArthur says this. The gospel in vogue today holds forth a false hope to sinners. It promises them that they can have eternal life yet continue to live in rebellion against God. Indeed, it encourages people to claim Jesus as Savior, yet defer until later the commitment to obey Him as Lord. It promises salvation from hell, but not necessarily freedom from iniquity. It offers false security to people who revel in the sins of the flesh and spurn the way of holiness. By separating faith from faithfulness, It leaves the impression that intellectual assent is is as valid as wholehearted obedience to the truth. Thus, 
the good news of Christ has given way to the bad news of an insidious, easy believism that makes no moral demands on the lives of sinners. And it's not the same message that Jesus proclaimed. Jesus asked for our obedience. Jesus said that there will be many who cry out at the end of life, who said, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we? And he said, I, I don't know you. Depart from me. And the very next passage, it says, it goes on to the story of a man who builds his life on the sand and a man who builds his life on the rock. And it's this idea of both of them heard the words of Jesus. Both of them heard the words of how to construct their house, but one obeyed. The reality is he has called us to be obedient, and he has given us an example. The last thing is this, is that we must yield. That we must yield. Did I have a definition of yield in there? Maybe, maybe not. I didn't have it here, so... This passage goes on in verse 7. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment. So he, what he's about to say is not new. It's an old commandment. You've had it from the beginning. The old commandment is the words you've already heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing you. It's true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He's getting into this idea of love and, I, and I, I love this because I think the example given is your love for your neighbor. But I think it plays out in, in numerous different places. It's, a, it's not a new commandment because the Old Testament teaches us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might and to love your neighbor. But there's a reality in which the way in which Jesus loved us, sacrificially given of his life, it was, it was a new picture of what it meant to love. It was a new way of what it means to love. It was a new type of love. It was a deeper love than anyone could ever experience. And he talks about this in this idea that the light was coming. Now, I don't know about you, but I read this passage, and it says that darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. My first reading of this passage, I go, it doesn't really seem that darkness is passing away. When I look around at the world in which we live in, it doesn't really seem like darkness is passing away. In fact, when I look around the world, it seems like it's getting more and more dark. And the light is actually growing dimmer. And so I read the passage and I go, is that true? And I begin to wrestle with this idea of going, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And what John is pointing to here is an eschatological reality. It's basically, it's an end time reality. The end time reality is that at the end of time, darkness is going to pass away. 
and the true light will shine. But there's a reality in which that that's happening now. That we as believers in Jesus, as true sons and daughters, as those who abide in him, the reality is our lives should give a testimony to that. What do I mean by that? It means that as believers in Jesus, the darkness should be fading away and the light should be growing brighter. This is what it means to live in the kingdom of God. This is what is happening right now in the kingdom of God. And those of us who are in Christ, it says, it's true in him and it's true in you. It gives us great evidence to those who are in Christ. Here's the question. And maybe a question for you to ask yourself. Is the darkness in your life growing dimmer and the light of Christ growing brighter day by day? That's a reality for those who are in Christ. That the darkness is growing dimmer day by day by day and the true light of Christ is beginning to shine through as you yield your life to submission to Christ and walk in obedience to Jesus none of us want to yield none of us want to submit our lives like give over possession to another that was the definition of yield is to give over possession to another. It's this idea of, of truly coming to a place of submission of our life, yielding to God and his purposes. I'll close with this. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we can sum it up like this. To live a life of sin means that we are not governed by God. That thoughts of God are not at the center of our lives. We do not ask God, what does God have me to do? What does God prohibit? It means that we're governed by what John in this self-same chapter goes on to call the world. We're governed by the world the way of the world, the whole attitude of the world. It's the sort of life in which thoughts of God do not come in except perhaps occasionally when men and women are frightened because they've been taken ill or there is death. It means God has not governed and controlled their lives, that they have been dictated by everything that is apart from God. That is sin. To live and to dwell in that kind of atmosphere and to be living that sort of life as if God did not exist and as if, as if this were the only world and as if man were the supreme being in the whole universe. That's what it means to walk in sin. But we as believers in Jesus yield to God and his purposes. And as we yield to God and his purposes, it surfaces 
not only in our love for God, not only in our, our walking in obedience to God, but in our love for others, the church. So here's my question. Do you know the objective? Do you know the aim? Are you out to, to hit the mark? Is that your target? Do you know that you have a Father who loves you? Do you know that Jesus Christ is advocating for you, who is in the fight with you? Do you know that you've been given an example who is Jesus, that we are to walk in the way in which he walked? And do you know that you're being called to yield to the purposes of God and submit your lives to the light that is shining brighter day by day? This is what it means to obey and walk in the ways of Jesus, to surrender your life to his control. Church, is that you? We're not looking for professional churchgoers. We're not looking for professional Christians. We're looking for people who are seeking Jesus and desiring to walk in obedience to Jesus. He wants to fight for you. He wants to help you. He wants to empower you to do that today. Let's pray together. Father, we... Would you move us? Whether we're in the room this morning and we're in a complacent state, that we're just okay with where we're at or we're in a hopeless state. Lord, would you speak to each one right now? Would you move in the hearts of those who have grown complacent, who have compromised, that you would, would you raise the bar? Would you show them where the standard is, Father? that they would pursue, that they would reach, that they would strive, that they would aim for godliness. Lord, would you come to those who are wounded, who are hopeless, who are in despair, who have bought into the lies this morning? Would you encourage them? Would you encourage them to know that they have an advocate? that you are before the throne right now and you don't stand accused. Lord, encourage us to walk with you. Continue to empower us to walk in obedience to you. And we thank you for Jesus, that he is the propitiation for our sins. And his death on the cross was sufficient for the sins of all the world. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.